Welcome back to Around the Room. I'm Daniel Ennis. This is another episode of Ask an Expert with Dr. Janet Pope. If you haven't already, have a listen to our previous episodes on methotrexate, early RA, Raynaud's, and lupus. And as always, please send in your questions. We announced the upcoming topics in the CRA email blasts, so keep an eye out for those. In this episode, Dr. Pope and I are actually going to be talking about scleroderma, which I know is near and dear to Dr. Pope's heart. Janet, welcome back. How are you? Great. And how are you doing, Daniel? I'm pretty good. Thanks for asking. So as listeners know, you have been active in scleroderma research for a number of years. I need to pick your brain about how to approach these patients. I definitely find that when I see them for initial consultation, um, there's a lot to go through. And I think I need your help in terms of organizing my thinking about how to get through that consult and generate an appropriate diagnosis, investigation, and kind of plan of attack. So to that end, we're going to do two episodes on scleroderma. This one is going to focus primarily on the diagnostics and investigations. And then next time, we're going to talk about management. Does that sound okay? I think it's great. And I think people will look forward to the second one after they hear the first one. Absolutely. That's right. Um, so, So let's begin at the beginning. So let's start with diagnosis. So I, I think what I want to know and what would help me is if you can remind me what differentiates limited and diffuse systemic sclerosis and further, why does it matter? Right. So Daniel, excellent questions. And I'm going to just pre go back one more. So it's even people say, uh, is it systemic? So they're used to lupus that can be cutaneous or systemic and lots of systemic lupus has cutaneous. So when we're looking at scleroderma, it's even is this systemic? So most of us in rheumatology are going to concentrate our efforts on systemic sclerosis, although pediatrics will see as a for instance, a linear scleroderma, or mm-hmm. a more fee we adults and pediatric rooms might be seeing more So we're really talking about systemic sclerosis. So we're trying to diagnose that, then we subdivide. So to diagnose that systemic sclerosis, what we will from now on in the podcast call scleroderma, we mean the systemic sclerosis subset. Um, You want to really say a few key things. So there are the 2013 ACR ULAR criteria that I probably got gray hairs over working on that for a long, long time. But the bottom line is, as a, for instance, clinical pearls, if they don't have Raynaud's, think twice. Mm -hmm. So there are probably one to 3% of our patients in Canada that don't have Raynaud's. If they don't have an ANA, think twice, but... We know everybody has an ANA, so not having one so unusual. Um, some of the um, outside lab kits, the commercial kits, nucleolar, for some reason, isn't always picked up. I don't know why. So if ANA is negative and you think it's systemic sclerosis and you're not really sure, maybe only once would you repeat that negative ANA, not for other uh, indications, but at a different lab, such as a university hospital lab, because the kits might be different and um, nucleolar is one of those weird ones to detect. Mm -hmm. So those are the two kind of clinical pearls. So we think of scleroderma that everyone pretty much has um, GI involvement, vasculopathy with Raynaud's, maybe half of them have digital ulcers ever and pits. Um, And then as you getting now into your question, as you said, whether it's limited or diffuse, what does it matter? And how do we even really know? So it matters because of prognosis. So again, a clinical pearl is that If someone has more skin involvement, so 
upper arms, upper legs, and or truncal, whereas limited won't will be below the elbows, below the knees, not truncal, not upper arms, not upper legs, but either could have uh, face and neck to clavicles. So if you have more skin involvement in general, you do worse and you have more of just about everything except for in the long-standing pulmonary arterial hypertension is probably equal in the two groups, but you have more ILD, you have more morbidity and mortality, worse GI, um, more vasculopathy with digital ulcers, of course, higher chance of renal crisis. So it really matters because it's prognosis importance and who do I worry about today? And as we're going to talk about, how do I work them up if there's one group versus the other? What am I concerned about? Right. Okay. So that's helpful. So, so big pictures for prognosis. And then we're going to talk about how it actually differentiates um, your investigative pathway. All right, Janet, this is a perfect time to take a question from a listener. Hi, Dr. Pope. My name is Leonardo Martin. I'm a resident at Western University. What do you make of the concept of very early diagnosis of systemic sclerosis, the VDOS criteria, with brain notes, puffy fingers, positive ANA? Do you see that as a useful framework for how many are going to evolve into true scleroderma? So first of all, I think it's a, a great idea to think, can we detect early? Because if and when we get something that's more preventative, or if we could intervene super early, if we were pretty certain someone might go down a pathway, say, of pulmonary fibrosis, wouldn't that be great? Mm -hmm. So we're not at the we can intervene early, but we can prognosticate and maybe help people you know, live a better lifestyle, keeping warm is not a better lifestyle, but stopping smoking, things like that. But the vetoes thing makes sense. But there are definitely patients that we see who are puffy fingers, centromere, a bit of a GERD and dysphagia that over a decade or two decades don't do anything much differently. And I think we'd all say you're mild, limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis. I see. Okay. So not everyone's going to evolve. Maybe it maybe it kind of like early RA, similar idea of like, some of these people are going to evolve, some of them won't, uh, maybe a, a group to keep a closer watch on. Exactly. And I, so that's the idea, the very early. So there are patients with limited who will get uh, Raynaud's on average eight to 10 years before their next uh, systemic sclerosis symptoms, which is often puffy fingers or tight fingers, or interestingly, GI, so um, hmm. GERD or dysphagia can come early in some of these patients. So we have this window where you could say, wow, if I actually treated geranodes more successfully, stopped ischemia, would you get less um, up or down regulation of the things that are good slash bad of the vascular and endothelial pathways that could maybe prevent scleroderma. So again, we're not there, but I mean, we do think in um, RA or lupus or um, kids with JIA, if you could pick it up earlier, maybe you could prevent damage. So mm -hmm. as we get better treatments, it makes a lot of sense. But um, those patients with the uh, centromere and Raynaud's and maybe GERD, maybe puffy fingers, the VDOS patients, they're a captive audience. But as I say, I have people 20 years like that, that I think are, were scleroderma all along, but were mild and didn't evolve. So maybe you need the right genes or another hit on your immune system or getting, you know, some weird uh, virus to really set you off further. I see. Okay. Um you know, it, it, this doesn't quite fit into our framework for the discussion, but I I think it's such an interesting idea, and I, I definitely want to give it a bit of a platform. So are you able to kind of talk a little 
a little bit about the 15% rule, because I think it's such a fascinating idea and, and such an interesting paper. Right. And I think the 15% rule does actually fit in on how we're going to think about review of systems so that we do investigate. Mm -hmm. So um, I needed to uh, get one of my rheumatology fellows very busy, although he was very busy and highly productive. But I said, you know, I think everything's about 15% that we talk about. And it's not everything. And I'll tell you when it isn't everything. And I said, so I want you to do a systematic review of all these cohort studies, um, cross-sectional studies that have 100 patients or more so that we don't have such a biased estimate and see how uh, frequent some of these manifestations are. So almost everyone has Raynaud's and more than 80% have clinically relevant GI involvement with GERD, dysphagia, or both. So 15% rule doesn't work there. Um, but if we say digital ulcers, half the patients, but on any day, 15% or one in six have a digital ulcer. Um, many of them, there's two or more. So they're often multiple, which makes sense. Um, but 50% ever. Then 15% will have true right heart cath groove and pulmonary arterial hypertension. And in some studies, it's eight to 15%. The confidence interval is a bit wide there. 15% um, will have what I feel is clinically relevant ILD. It's it's really one in three of diffuse, one in uh, four of limited, but clinically relevant FVC percent predicted, say 70% or less. 15% might have cardiac, but we really don't see cardiac that much. I think some of these are not always clinically relevant. So you might not believe me when I tell you that part. 15% will have an overlap with Sjogren's or have Sika. 15% have myopathy or in some of them an overlap with inflammatory myositis, which could be dermato or it could be poly. Then 15% will have inflammatory arthritis. And by that, there's more people that have tenosynovitis, joint pain, but 15% of real inflammatory arthritis with scleroderma, but 3% are RA, the rest are scleroderma, arthritis, or um, I, I guess arthralgia slash arthritis that needs DMARD treatment. So you can see there's a lot of these things that kind of go into the 15% rule. And what I did was just sort of thought along organ systems for Sjogren's, for heart, lungs, and then in early diffuse, 15% of renal crisis, but overall only about 3%. And because limited are two to three to one diffuse in practices in North America, and some of the diffuse, unfortunately, with renal crisis die because they often do have pericardial involvement, maybe bad ILD, rapidly progressive patients. So I think one, if you know, 15%, if you look at it the other way, if you're seeing six patients with scleroderma, one of them is bound to have something and some of them could have two, three or more of these 15% rule things. Wow. Okay. Well, you, you actually labeled absolutely, I think every single thing in, in the, uh, <laughs> in the summary of the article uh, that I have in front of me. So that that's pretty spectacular. I think that's a really useful framework, just as you said, to at least think about um, organs that maybe don't strike you or, or you're not thinking like maybe cardiac involvement, as you said, um, that's maybe not something that is like highest on my list um, outside of pulmonary hypertension. Um, but that's really important to think about in the patients too. So maybe using it as that review of systems is super useful. So thanks for outlining that. So, so then we can now move on to investigations. So maybe we open up we'll get to investigations by organ system. So that'll help me with my my framework. I'm hoping to open up just with 
can you describe the difference in baseline investigations for diffuse versus limited? And, and you hinted at that earlier. Right. I hinted and then it, it's a rule that doesn't always work. But okay. basically, number one, don't repeat the ANA. And we know that as rheumatologists, other than if ANA is negative and you really know it's scleroderma, then just say, well, that's a, a one off, an unusual patient. But if you're uncertain and, you know, maybe there's not a good history of Raynaud's and someone didn't have their cell phone on them to actually take a picture of the Raynaud's mm-hmm. and some things fit, some don't, then you might say negative ANA done in the commercial level redo it. But in general, we don't redo ANA. So we're looking at ANA if you're lucky enough to get patterns. So half of diffuse have nucleolar. The rest could be a non-specific pattern, speckled, um, homogeneous, whatever. And half of limited have centromere pattern. So you don't have to have centromere and be limited. And you don't have to have nucleolar and be diffuse, but they would be the most common patterns in each of those groups. And interestingly, about 3% of the diffuse have centromere. And you wonder, are they really maybe these indeterminate, intermediate kind of uh, patients? Who knows? Hard to say. Mm-hmm. In general, centromere is a better prognosis. So you don't want scleroderma systemic. But if you have it, centromere in general does better, better survival, less organ involvement, et cetera. So mm-hmm. then we're going to say, okay, in a diffuse patient, um, if they have basal crackles, I'm far more apt to do an HRCT scan. And there are many clinics who say, if you're diffuse or even limited at a baseline, I'll do an HRCT lungs once. Um, if someone's limited and not an ENA positive for SCL70, that's toparsomerase 1, then you might not want to do an HRCT. Um, so that might differentiate there. But in general, once I'm meeting a patient and trying to talk about diagnosis and then prognosis, on most patients, I will try, even with the COVID pandemic, to do PFTs and an echo and a chest X-ray. And then I'm probably going to do their complete blood count, diff, creatinine, ALT. And if you're limited and um, say you're itchy or you've got a strong family history of um, other autoimmune conditions in the GI tract, maybe only in that subset will I do anti-mitochondrial antibody and or an elk FOS because most don't present with primary biliary cirrhosis. But again, about Interestingly, about three to six percent of scleroderma has primary biliary. It's called cholangitis. Now, PBC is primary biliary cholangitis. And it's important because they should be on your soda, kind of not have liver failure down the road. Um, but the whole, the vast majority are limited. A lot of them, but not all, will have a Sjogren's overlap. And almost all of them are centromere positive because there's this weird thing that anti-centromere antibody and anti-mitochondrial antibody are in linkage disequilibrium. So they go together more by genetics than you would think, which is kind of neat. So if you're centromere and you want to be really smart and waste just one antibody's worth of money, (laughs) you can do an (laughs) anti-mitochondrial antibody. But that means also we're doing the ENA. So RNA polymerase 3, which is super helpful other than in Calgary you're not going to get it why is it helpful if someone has diffuse rapidly progressive 
Um, if you have an RNA polymerase three antibody, RNA pull three is another way that people call it. Um, you have about a 20 to 40 fold increased risk of renal crisis. It, whereas if you're SCL70 antibody positive, you have a two to four fold increased risk of clinically relevant ILD. So you can see it's actually very helpful if you, if we're worried about renal crisis. So, um, that takes us back to investigations. Another thing that I will do is if you're diffuse, and I know you're diffuse, if you've got skin involvement, t- say to your forearms, that's mm-hmm. unusual and limited, still could be limited because not proximal above the elbows yet. So anybody who's got skin involvement really beyond the wrists, uh, that's early, I will do ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Borrow a blood pressure cuff or get your friends or something, whatever, and do your blood pressure and I give targets. So I, if if you don't want to think too much about it, if their blood pressure is normal, think about a, a woman who's pregnant. If you have, if we're screening for pregnancy-induced hypertension, toxemia, just to change from normal is kind of important. And especially for treating the Raynaud's with a calcium channel blocker. So I might say, if you're 140 over 90 twice in a row, let me know. Or higher, because you normally run 120 over 80. If you run 90 over 60, I'm going to say if you're 130 over 85, that's still not expected. And if it's repeated, because most scleroderma renal crisis, the blood pressure is super high. And I want to pick that up. So that is a screening that I do mostly in diffuse, or if I'm not sure if you're diffuse or limited. So that and that's, you know, in inexpensive sort of screening to do. Okay, great. So that kind of sets the table for your your general workup for diffuse versus limited and and kind of a walkthrough of the importance of the antibodies, anti-centromere, SCL70, and um, and RNA polymerase. So with that in the background, we can kind of talk through each of the organ systems, perhaps. And some of them don't apply, so we'll, we'll whip through them. And some of them we're probably going to spend a bit more time on. So maybe w- because skin is kind of the thing that, that usually prompts the referral, let's, let's start with skin. And let's go to a question from a listener. Hi, Dr. Pope. My name is Mace Newman, and I'm a resident at Western University. Are there any specific investigations you do when you see sclerodactyly and thickened skin? Is there ever an important role for a biopsy outside of differentiating mimics? Or is skin from your perspective purely clinical? Don't do anything specific for that. Right. So if you're not doing research, I don't think most people need a biopsy. And I'll give you again some caveats is that if someone has quite tight skin and does not have finger involvement, so say they have skin beyond their hands, but they don't have sclerodactyly, you're barking up the wrong tree. So they could be eosinophilic uh, fasciitis. They could be, you know, even things like stasis dermatitis. Um, they could be linear scleroderma. They could be generalized morphia. Uh, they could be scleromix edema when they can't, scleromix edema patients often can't flex their fingers, but they have no finger involvement. That can also happen in eosinophilic fasciitis because the tendons proximal are tight in the forearm, as if, for instance. Mm-hmm. So if, um, it's so number one, number two, Almost all those conditions, except for scleromix edema that I said, so um, looking at eosinophilic fasciitis, morphia, linear scleroderma, guess what the skin biopsy looks like? Scleroderma, systemic sclerosis. So you're going to have a problem and nobody on, well, 
nobody's a strong word. It's difficult to get a deep fascial biopsy if you think someone has eosinophilic fasciitis. So eosinophilic fasciitis is usually three or four limbs. It's never really, in my opinion, one limb. And it looks like they're quite tight and woody, but they don't have Raynaud's. They don't have GI stuff. They usually don't have an ANA and they don't um, have finger involvement. So that's what I would say. The reverse to that, that's important for, I think, um, the young to practice, the new at practice, is that we do see sclerodactyly in longstanding diabetics, mm. but they don't have dilated capillaries. They don't have telangiectasia. And if they don't have Raynaud's, please don't do their ANA because <laughs> ANAs are a dime a dozen, maybe even they're four cents a dozen. So ANAs are just so commonly positive. I think about one in three women right now. So sclerodactyly without anything else um, maybe I would do an HbA1c. That might be where you're gonna where the money lies. But if you're sclerodactyly and you have telangiectasia and dilated capillaries and things, then it's kind of more a go-to. So the investigation I do, which really isn't an investigation, is I do the skin score. So I'm not expecting most colleagues to do a skin score, but just like say in someone with psoriatic arthritis with psoriasis, you go, it's all over the place, it's mild, moderate, severe, whatever the worst area is. You should try to see, is it upper arms, upper legs, or truncal? And for truncal, look around their umbilicus, belt sign. No one wears their pants that high anymore, like farmer pants. So that's where the belt sign is. But also um, under the breasts is where you can get some uh, change. Um, so there are two areas, uh, truncally to look. Uh, involvement on the back is very uncommon, as a for instance. And then you um, pinch... Um, forearms and when we're pinching we're looking for wrinkles around our fingers so is it tight and stuck down so tethered or hide bound but when I pinch um obviously when I pinch someone who's younger they might have uh different wrinkling than someone who's say my <laughs> age so you're there's an age appropriate adjustment and someone with significant anasarca is going to look like they have shiny edematous skin because they do and that's not their scleroderma presumably mm-hmm. So, and just for clarity, if, if you see someone, you're wondering about a mimic, you've decided that you're going to do a skin biopsy, is it fair that a, a skin punch biopsy, bedside punch biopsy, which is something many rheumatologists are okay doing, not quite enough, you really need the fascial biopsy, so more need to see dermatology, plastics, or, or you'd be comfortable with a punch? Well, if you do the punch and you think it could be uh, generalized morphia, because honestly, it is sometimes to tell they're early on and that, you know, maybe they had Raynaud's for like 3% of the population is Raynaud's. So maybe they had Raynaud's for decades and you go, well, I think that was idiopathic primary Raynaud's. So I'll have right. to listen to that podcast. But then you go, <laughs> well, I, so they don't have new Raynaud's on top, do they? No, probably right. not. So um, you could, a punch biopsy would suffice, but you must, uh, when you, if you're going to do a biopsy, say, is this systemic sclerosis versus mimicry? You got to let the pathologist have an idea of what you're thinking. And sometimes if you can't understand what they're saying, you just send, you say, can you please send it to your dermatopathologist? Because they'll say compatible with, and they'll give you everything, including, um, that sclerodema of brushka, which we don't even know what that is, even though I barely know what that is. <laughs> so they're going to give you this whole list and you go, well, I was no further ahead. In fact, I'm more confused. But if right. you suspect eosinophilic fasciitis, so no Raynaud's, tight limbs, you can really do um, an eosinophil count. So that's the diff on the CBC. 
So I don't think you have to do a biopsy. And I have seen people have delays in treatment for eosinophilic fasciitis because they were waiting for a biopsy and then it came back inconclusive, had to be done more deeply. Right. Okay. Got it. We'll be right back to Around the Room after this brief message from the CRA. Did you know that membership with the Canadian Rheumatology Association offers outstanding value through knowledge sharing, accredited educational offerings, advocacy, and research support. Members receive access to free webinars, programs, and discounts to events such as the CRA Review Course and Annual Scientific Meeting. Members also receive complimentary subscriptions to the Journal of Rheumatology and the Journal of the Canadian Rheumatology Association. Trainees can join for free and are eligible for educational and training opportunities, travel bursaries, and much more. These are just some of the many benefits of joining the Canadian Rheumatology Association. And if you're an existing member, spread the word to rheumatology colleagues who haven't joined yet. They'll thank you for it. For more information, please visit our website at www.room.ca. And now, back to Around the Room. All right, next organ. So let's let's then go to GI. And there's tons to talk about here. We're going to kind of start easy and get more complicated, I think. So let's start with uh, GERD. Do you pursue any specific investigations for acid reflux, or do you just empirically treat? So I empirically treat, and again, a, a clinical pearl is many of our patients need double triple and rarely quadruple the approved dose of PPI. So you're allowed to do that. GI does it. I do it. You're allowed to do it. So the only ones that I would investigate, um, I don't do manometry because I can tell you if you have bad GERD, it doesn't matter what your manometry is because we're going to treat you symptomatically. I will get people scoped um, if I think they have erosive esophagitis, if I think they need a dilatation, um, if I'm not sure if they have GAVE. So there are good reasons to get them scoped. So they have iron deficiency looking anemia. You don't know why GAVE can be present. I don't think it's 15%, doesn't fit in the rule, but it's probably about 3 to 5% of the patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, that needs to be treated usually with laser repeatedly or they'll keep bleeding and um, get quite anemic at times. So I don't, I don't do... Um, manometry or order manometry or scopes for no reason. But if in doubt, get GI involved, they'll scope anyway. And and it tells you some information, right? (laughs) Right. Okay. Um, So then moving on to dysphagia. So wondering about barium swallow, modified barium swallow, scope for dysphagia, or treat empirically? So I treat empirically, and sometimes they'll scope, and even if there's not a dilata- uh, a stricture to dilate, they'll dilate, and bizarrely, but true, true, and it is in GI literature, that even if there's not a narrowing that they're trying to dilate open, sometimes just dilating seems to maybe make more favorable parasolsis for a bit. Mm-hmm. So um, barium swallow, upper GI, all that, nope, nope, nope. So I'm a treater and only get help when I need it, but if in doubt, just get a GI opinion and they'll order the right tests that they think. Okay, fair enough. So you are not ordering barium swallows, modified barium swallows you're treating clinically. Correct. Okay, so so for this next uh, question, we're going to kind of pivot to lower GI symptoms. So Dr. Hayne Kim is a scleroderma clinician at the Mary Packard Arthritis Program here in Vancouver. 
And uh, she had a question about your, she, she wanted to note your general approach to investigating lower GI symptoms. So SIBO, constipation, diarrhea, malnutrition, bloating, dysmotility. And before you directly answer that question of how you investigate it, can you untangle that mess of terms that I just, <laughs> that I just came right, up with? Right. So, right. So, and it's difficult because constipation and diarrhea can both be the manifestations and we kind of treat. Right. Sometimes if you have <laughs> diarrhea, we still give you laxatives and you wonder that's kind of unusual, right? Because mm-hmm. there's reasons for it. So SIBO, small intestinal bowel overgrowth. So um, the last time I ordered a hydrogen breath test is too long ago to remember. Why? Because it's not available. They have to order it in. Why? Because we just treat it empirically. And if they get better, we're really happy. So I sort of think of the whole GI tract can be involved. So delayed satiety, so that you you can have your dysphagia, but your stomach might not contract right as well. And we're suppressing acid with my triple or quadruple dose PPI. So bacteria can grow. And then as bacteria grow, we're going to have in the small bowel more bacteria. Acid isn't killing the bacteria because we're making the pH less acidic from our PPIs. And what's happening is patients can get bloating. They can already get gastric dumping as well, like a a diabetic uh, um, autonomic neuropathy of the stomach. They can get that whole, they feel full early, they feel um, bloated and pain, and then they can get gastric dumping. So our patients can get that. But with SIBO, in addition, the small bowel overgrowth, intestinal bowel overgrowth, they will get too much bacteria. So they might be obstipated. Then all of a sudden gas, maybe foul smelling um, uh, feces, but they can really have diarrhea. And the diarrhea is treating the SIBO. So you're, you're pooping out a lot of bacteria, but then the whole process starts again because they have this hypotonic, hypotonic peristalsis. Things are just sitting there in a cesspool and we've, we've neutralized the pH. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a recurrent thing. Then we can have patients who have um, really very, uh, they, they're quite constipated and we can have people that have diarrhea and some is overflow from constant, like they have constipation, overflow, diarrhea around it. Mm-hmm. They can have fecal incontinence. So it's really, um, if you think the the small bowel, the large bowel, they can have diverticulosis that are a little bit unusual that occasionally give a bowel obstruction, very uncommon, um, but does occur. So there's a whole sort of series of events there. And yeah. the bottom line is if they have a lot of diarrhea, you can try to give them something that will constipate them. You can do FODMAP diet, see if it helps. Um, if you think it's diarrhea because of small bowel overgrowth, you can treat empirically. And uh, we'll talk about treatment later, but just um, one clinical pearl, erythromycin gives all of us diarrhea, except for if you have uh, small bowel overgrowth. It's a promotility agent as well. And it has right. some drug interactions too. So we won't talk too much about treatment right now. Um, but any antibiotic almost could be used, but we don't like to use Cipro because we don't want drug resistance for our COPD ears and things like that. But almost anything can be used. But um, I do have patients who are on stool softeners or Metamucil to bulk them up. And Metamucil could be for diarrhea or for constipation. And then some are on low motel or something like that. And then later they're on a laxative and you go, well, that seems crazy, but it's hard to modulate their bowel routine. Mm-hmm. And almost everything we're doing is off label. So you might use kind of like, um, irritable bowel drugs, um, 
I use that uh, Rizotram procalaprolamide, which is really a pro, uh, pro-motility agent to contract um, the stomach and everything distally. So it's actually kind of helpful. And it's not like it's a, a derivative of Cisapri, but it has different metabolic pathways. So it's um, not going to prolong the QT, so to speak, the way Cisapri did that kind of got pulled from the market. I see. Okay. And and so in there, I, I think you said it, but how do you how do you precisely say that someone has constipation and some bloating versus SIBO? How do you actually make that kind of like firm distinction in there? Because I, I definitely find that one to be a, a tough distinction. So SIBO should cycle. Like if it's really severe, it's all mm-hmm. the time you're bloated. A lot of those people have weight loss. They say, you know, everything's kind of foul. I have when I, I burp as a, for instance, it's foul uh, because there's a lot of bacteria present. And um, so, and it's probably the degree of the severity because I guess anybody obviously could have constipation or bouts of diarrhea within their life. And some people do have superimposed irritable bowel uh, for lots of reasons. Um, but I think it's more a severity and I'll give a course like seven days antibiotics. And if they say it's way better for a long period of time, that's success. If they right. go, I don't know if it worked. Well, that's easy. It didn't. So, <laughs> right, so it's okay to do an empiric one, a moxil or erythromycin, um, yeah. uh, you know, metronidazole, uh, tetracycline. They're all pretty inexpensive and uh, usually well tolerated for one course just to give a trial. But it is difficult to know. And, um, you know, if someone's quite severe that goes to merge or something, they're going to get a flat plate. And yeah. if they've got gas all over, they might have an alias, right? So Sometimes that helps to differentiate, but that's a more severe patient than coming into a regular clinic appointment. Right. Okay. Uh, Dr. Kim also had a, another interesting question. So she was wondering about your thoughts on the utility of CCAT studies. Now, I don't, I had never heard of that. So for listeners, selenium homocolic acid taurine study, and that is uh, a, supposedly for the diagnosis of SIBO, I believe. Right. So I've heard about it. I don't even know if we have it available. Like I I haven't seen the GI people in our area order it. So it's probably not available. So I honestly can't tell you the utility, but, um, I think it's sort of like if you want to do an investigation, just ask GI what to do. But I would just in many of my patients empirically treat because GI involvement is almost ubiquitous in scleroderma the way, um, Raynaud's is, but only, um, Many people have bad GERD, bad dysphagia. About half of the 15% are so severe that they would need surgery for their um, for their reflux or, or have severe malnutrition, things like that. So 7.5% of our patients um, are going to need a lot of help with our colleagues on a regular basis of the GI colleagues. Right. Okay. All right. So we get to move on from the GI track then. So let's go to kidneys. So you already kind of gave us a bit of a a preamble about making sure you're monitoring blood pressure for scleroderma renal crisis. You gave us a little bit of understanding of which patients in particular you're worried about. How do you actually work up a patient for renal crisis? What what sort of blood work do you send or, or other testing would you send in outpatient or inpatient? Right. And this is always on the exam for the orals, by the way. It's one of the, or written, it's an emergency, right? We don't have many emergencies in rheumatology. So it comes up uh, every other year. So just beware. So basically, number one, high index of suspicion. 
Number two, I am monitoring the blood pressure and the people I'm worried about. But some people, in fairness, present that way. So renal crisis, we probably have one or two patients every two years presenting their systemic sclerosis with renal crisis. So you can't monitor when you don't know anything that's going on, right? And then you get the Raynaud's history of just a month before and their fingers might or might not even be puffy yet, as a for instance. So high index of suspicion, if you've already seen the early diffuse, you won't know their RNA polymerase except for in... Um, the lab in Calgary. So no one else of all our listeners know if there are any polymerase three or not. So basically, um, in general, and this is the problem, almost all have new hypertension that looks like malignant hypertension. Um, if they're normal tensive, you're going to miss the boat. And I, I, I'll defend you in a court of law and we'll talk about those in a sec. But basically, it's it's new a new rapid rise in blood pressure. So often they're reading like 220 over 110 and they're symptomatic. Headaches, maybe blurred vision. They can have obviously uh, papal edema or brain edema, but they don't have to, but they can because it's a new hypertension in someone who didn't have this before. Um, you're, you, they will have a high LD, which you're probably not going to order, but they do, by the way. Um, but you're going to look for intravascular hemolysis, so schistocytes, um, looking for things like that. They might have um, uh, haptoglobin in their urine. So it, it, they could have red cells, by the way, and some protein in the urine, but they won't have red cell cast. But mm -hmm. you could dip, and they could dip three plus blood, and yet there's no red blood cells present. And you go, well, where's that? So that's a breakdown of the, the red blood cells that are breaking down. Um, um, you're probably also going to, you know, see that they're becoming anemic. They don't usually go pancytopenic. A lot of them are intravascularly depleted. Only 50% uh, start, though, with um, creatinine, creatinine rising, and that's always a bad sign. So mm -hmm. those are the sorts of things. But um, so do a peripheral smear. Um, you're looking for breakdown of red blood cells because all those blood vessels are clamped down. So they're clamped down so much that they're shearing of the blood vessels. So that's a lot of intravascular hemolysis. So just keep that in mind. And then, you know, the patients are probably sick and they might have symptoms of what looks like malignant hypertension. And we argue with nephro all the time about this. So it's not easy. It's not easy for um, someone that doesn't see a lot of scleroderma as well to, to know, but you go, wow, I think this might be scleroderma um, if you're not, hadn't made a diagnosis yet. And I think it's renal crisis. So those are the things that renin's really high, but renin, or renin is high on lots of um, diffuse scleroderma patients, interestingly. Mm. So it's not, it doesn't differentiate for you. Right. And, and do you ever require the help of a renal biopsy? Um, I, I think you've, you've certainly mentioned before in other talks, the overlap with ankyovasculitis. So that's something to consider. So are, are you seeing a scleroderma renal crisis or, or have you kind of tipped into a nephritic syndrome from GN, uh, wondering how often you'd use that test? Right. So first of all, the overlap with a vasculitis, well-reported, extremely common. We love to report rare stuff, right? So <laughs> yes. have I seen it? Yes. Have I seen it like three times in my life? And that will be the three I'll ever see. So um, don't even think that unless if there was like, say, three plus protein, ANCA's positive because they hadn't been diagnosed with scleroderma. So someone did a panel, including it, because I'm not going to do an ANCA in a regular scleroderma patient where I don't think there's an overlap. So mm -hmm. just 
that's true, but get it out of your mind. So <laughs> I don't like a renal biopsy for two reasons. It delays treatment because the renal people want to just not treat their blood pressure aggressively. They think they have renal artery stenosis as if these are, or they think that it's hypertension with malignant on top so that they don't want like, you know, to not perfuse their brain. It's like, no, their brain's not perfusing because yesterday their blood pressure is 90 over 60 and today it's 220 over 110. So this right. is not, you got to, it's a rapid rise and you got to get it down rapid. Rapidly. So um, the risk with renal biopsy, number one, it's nonspecific. So it can look like malignant hypertension. Number two, there are high risk of bleeding because there's a lot of um, shunting going on in the kidneys. Um, vessels are clamped down. And um, with this shearing and schistocytes, I can tell you that I think that they don't get DIC because they don't until they're really sick, maybe in the ICU, which is, you know, an end organ failure thing. But I some of them clinically are almost like a coagulopathy for fibrinogens abnormal and stuff. So I don't want that person bleeding with a high blood pressure in the kidney because you could end up with a big problem. So I don't ask for a biopsy unless if it's um, maybe normal tensive, I don't even know what's going on. Maybe I don't know if they're limited or diffuse or a bit um, indeterminate right now. It's early right. on in the disease, stuff like that. And because we can't get RNA polymerase three. So just think they have it, get help from nephro and start an ACE, maximize the ACE and optimize the ACE. And we'll talk about treatment at the other podcast on day one. You want their blood pressure better ASAP, the longer it takes. And if their creatinine is rising, the more likely they'll have renal failure. Great. Okay, cool. So, you know, I, I, I want to kind of stick to our, our time limits here. So uh, there are other organs involved, of course, but maybe last one we'll talk about is the lungs. So pulmonary hypertension and ILD as major manifestations in, in the lungs and lung vasculature, you, you have alluded to how you investigate them. Uh, maybe here then you can kind of give me a sense of screening and, and how long we should follow people, how often to screen and, and how long we should continue to screen for. Right. So I think um, some groups will do it differently, but because we have these tests reimbursed and somewhat widely available at most centers in Canada, um, I would do baseline echo looking for um, a couple of things. So obviously I'm looking for right heart pulmonary pressures, pulmonary arterial hypertension increases with age and disease duration. So although you could get it early, it's often a later manifestation, which is why at the end it's more common and limited because everybody else might've died off. So it's really, it's about equal though and limited and diffuse if you start doing fancy statistics, but uh, because if you look at a survival analysis, but so I want a baseline, but you can also see, do you have a pericardial effusion? Because by the way, that's usually not a good prognosis. I don't exactly know why, but pericardial effusions are more common and diffuse. And a lot of scleroderma renal crisis have a pericardial effusion. Maybe it's a high pressures then and they can't drain the pericardium. I have no clue why really. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I can look at the left heart. Do you have LVH or things already? You can look at then the usual things, valvular disease, all the stuff that if you're say 72 with new limited, that we know a baseline of, you know, sort of what your heart function is looking like unrelated to your scleroderma as a baseline, but pulmonary pressure and really looking at uh, the pericardium, right and left ventricles, et cetera. Um, I'm also going to then do PFTs and I'm doing PFTs for two reasons. One is to say it's a baseline to say, if 
um, later, like say if you're 115% predicted um, TLC and FVC percent predicted, then maybe if you're 80 later, I can tell you you're a lot different, right? So do it as a baseline and you won't regret it that you have it. But we're also looking at the diffusing capacity because a very low diffusing capacity, if you don't have a cold, you're not a smoker, say. A very low diffusing capacity is, is predictive in scleroderma, not in idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, but in scleroderma, it's predictive of future pulmonary vascular disease. So the diffusing capacity, TLC, FEC percent predicted, and if they have obstructive lung disease for whatever reason, you can look at the residual volume too, and just keep those in mind because you might kind of plot them or write them out or get your computer, um, your program to plot them over time. So that that's it as well as probably in most a baseline chest x-ray um, because you might you know, people ask rate later, so you can have shortness of breath and some wheezes, maybe a few crackles, and maybe it's unilateral because you aspirated. So never mm-hmm. hurts to have a baseline on a serious disease to know what happens later. And and so then lastly, you know, all these things are kind of in service to should we go on to a right heart cath? And I'm wondering if you are using the detect algorithm or other algorithmic approaches or or not. And I'm Hoping you say or not, because it's a bit cumbersome. Right. So I must admit, so uh, my disclosure is I am on the detect algorithm as an author and I was in the steering committee of it. Do I use it? Absolutely not. Does Dinesh Bona <laughs> use it? Yes. So there you go. So you got two people kind of disagreeing. Um, no, I follow the diffusing capacity. I follow for shortness of breath. I look at the echo and the detect algorithm. We have to remember it started in. Um, prevalent patients, so more were limited and they were longer standing disease. And you started the detect algorithm by you had to have a low diffusing capacity. So it had to be, I think it was under 80% predicted to even get into the detect algorithm, which means they did PFTs anyway, right? So it's not right. saving that much money. Um, but if you can't get pulmonary, uh, if you don't have, um, uh, tricuspid regurge. Most of us do, but again, 15% of us probably don't. So then you can do measure other stuff. So the detect algorithm might be helpful. This TAPSI score, which you don't have to know what it is, but the cardiologists know what it is that can give you sort of signs of right heart, not doing as well, right heart in trouble or strain. That's not yet in failure or anything like that. So you don't have to worry about these other words, but I'm not doing that, but there's a few things. Some Marie Hudson published um, as well as I think she's the senior author and maybe a trainee was the first author from the Canadian scleroderma research group and basically published that if the patient is highly active, so they have no dyspnea and you've asked them in a few different ways, questioning them, it's not, are you short of breath? No. Like, are you able to carry the groceries in? Um, are you able to go for a walk like you used to when you um, shower and get dressed? Um, what Does it take long? or is there a change? Yes. Well, what is it? Well, I, I, it's hard because my frozen, I have frozen shoulders. You got to find out that they're short of breath or not. So ask if many different questions, mm-hmm. but basically um, she looked at that. If your diffusing capacity is normal and you don't have um, symptoms of dyspnea, then the incident pulmonary arterial hypertension in that group is basically zero. 
basically. And then one other little tricky thing that I don't know why you do it, but if someone has a uric acid that goes up over time and not with gout and not because they're on diuretics, because obviously maybe they have just normal essential hypertension, they're on a diuretic or in the right heart failure, I don't need their uric acid to know because then I don't screen your right heart failure (laughs) from pulmonary hypertension. Right. The uric acid can creep up just like diffusing capacity can, can go down. And then some expert centers will do BNP. So pro BNP or brain naturetic uh, peptide, which is showing strain on the right heart. It goes up when the right heart's in trouble. So massive pulmonary embolism, it goes up. So it's nonspecific. Uh, and I think that that's what uric acid is doing, saying there's some strain on the heart. Maybe that's my made up of what, why it might be going up. So just, you know, you can do a BNP, but I, I don't do it because it's not reimbursed in Ontario. And I let the experts them in the pulmonary clinic do it if they want. Janet, thank you so much. It's so nice to talk scleroderma with a master. I really appreciate it. Yeah, wonderful. And everybody stay tuned for now. What do we do about it? <laughs> that's right. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. To ask questions for our upcoming Ask the Experts segment on scleroderma management or to suggest future topics, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R Room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Kevin Bagenoth. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work, and of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fonwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.